the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we'll talk about nuclear weapons and nuclear fear, subjects that have been off the radar in our nation for some time. But did the threat ever really go away? We're going to hear from two experts about how the Russian invasion of Ukraine reminds of the dangers of maintaining the nuclear arsenals that still exist in the world. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad that you're joining us. Just for a minute, let's go back about 30 or 40 years to the mid to late 1980s when a very young Stephen Henderson is in middle and high school. I have this really vivid, recurring memory of that time. Every day when I would get home from school, especially when I was in high school, I remember I would look up at the sky before I went into my house. And I would wonder, is this the day that we're going to have a nuclear war? I guess maybe I thought I would see nuclear missiles flying overhead, if that were the case. And really, that was wondering about whether that would be the last day of human existence for an awful lot of people on our planet, and a fear that I might be one of them. This went on for years. In fact, I don't remember in high school ever not pausing to look up at the sky and wonder whether nuclear war might be starting that day. It was kind of a ritual I had after school. And it wasn't just this gesture. Popular culture, political discussion, all kinds of things in the 1980s were really focused on the idea that at some point, the United States and the Soviet Union would decide to resolve their differences by exchanging nuclear arsenals. Think of movies like War Games or The Hunt for Red October or the television movie The Day After, which really, I think, shocked the national conscience about what the consequences of nuclear war might be. But as I said, that's a really long time ago, and the Cold War has been over for 30 years. 
So for at least one entire generation of adults, that whole threat of nuclear war has not looked like that. I don't think kids today look up at the sky and wonder whether there's going to be a nuclear war. It's all kind of an abstraction. But the conversation about nuclear war has really changed in recent days. The Russian invasion of Ukraine suddenly poses real and terrifying questions about what escalation between Russia and the West could really mean. And new polling suggests a broad majority of Americans support imposing something like a no-fly zone over Ukraine, but many experts point out that no-fly zone is really just a nicer way of saying shooting down Russian jets. And think about what that would mean in terms of the relationship with Russia. Would that start a direct war? Would that implicate the nuclear arsenals that both countries have? This is also a reminder that even in the most peaceful of times, there are rockets with nuclear weapons pointed at us, and we have them pointed at others. It's still a reality. And none of this is to be alarmist. There has been plenty of that on social media lately, and there are some people, I think, who are being a little apoplectic about what we face. But today, we want to try to have a more level-headed conversation about what it means to live in a world with nuclear weapons and how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is shaping that reality. A little later in the show, we're going to talk with a media psychologist about how we can all cope with frightening realities like these in 2022, things that we have little or no control over, including nuclear proliferation. But first, I want to welcome someone who has long studied nuclear weapons and what they mean for all of our lives. Stephen Schwartz is a non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and an independent consultant, editor, and co-author of the 1998 book, Atomic Audit, The Costs and Consequences of U.S. Nuclear <clears throat> Weapons Since 1940. Stephen Schwartz, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you for having me on. I wish it were under different circumstances, but here we are. Yeah. So as someone who has spent your career researching nuclear weapons, tell me how you're reacting to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what you think it means for the possibility of nuclear war. Well, I think, uh, like a lot of my colleagues, the risk of, of nuclear war is, is low, but it's not zero. Uh, and the fact that we are now, well, not we, but the fact that Russia has invaded and is actively fighting in Ukraine and that Vladimir Putin has issued multiple threats to uh, NATO and the United States not to intervene or else he will do things that can only be interpreted as using nuclear weapons uh, should give us pause. Uh, this, is, this is a low probability but high consequence event. Uh, if it were to happen, but the uh, probability has increased since uh, the tanks and other military equipment rolled over the Russian border into Ukraine, and we, we can't rule it out. So although it's not something that I worry about happening 
uh, you know, immediately right now while we're talking, for example, mm -hmm. it's it's very much there um, in the background, and I worry about it less in the sense of either uh, Russia or the United States actively deciding to use nuclear weapons. I worry about it more that we could uh, stumble into something as we did multiple times during the Cold War and through miscalculation and accident or accident find ourselves uh, using nuclear weapons when we didn't intend to. So what is it about this particular action, this invasion by the Russians of Ukraine that has people talking in terms that, as I said in the open, we really haven't heard a lot since the 1980s or maybe uh, early 1990s. Uh, lots of things have happened on the planet since then. There are nuclear actors uh, uh, in the world and occasionally they do things that, that seem to be threatening other nations. What is it about this particular uh, military activity that that invokes that that nuclear context in such a stark way. Well, I think part of it is the the newness to a lot of people. Like you said, this is uh, something that a whole generation of people have not really had to to think about. The Cold War ended. The Soviet Union collapsed just over thirty years ago, and with it, the uh, incessant you know for those of us of a certain age, the incessant coverage of nuclear weapons also ended and you know there was talk of a peace dividend and Russia was becoming democratic and we were signing arms control agreements and there were even unilateral reductions of nuclear weapons by the United States and Russia and people thought wow you know we 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 came out of that and and nuclear weapons worked and kept the cold war cold and now we can you know go on and have productive peaceful lives but the reality is that nuclear weapons didn't disappear. There are far fewer nu nuclear weapons uh, in the world today than there were, let's say, in, in 1991, when the Soviet Union uh, ceased to exist. Um, you know, by the count of uh, the organization that uh, uh, that I'm a part of and that I used to run, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, there were almost 50,000 nuclear weapons scattered around the world in 1991, uh, and today there are fewer than 14,000. Um, but as the old saying goes from the 1980s or maybe even before, uh, one nuclear weapon can ruin your whole day. So <laughs> I think people are, are, are perhaps surprised that we are where we are. I mean, when we, when we talk about nuclear weapons, at least in this country, for the most part, it's in the context of uh, concern about North Korea uh, or Iran potentially getting a nuclear weapon. Um, and I think the last time that we really were perhaps seriously concerned, and it was only for a relatively brief period of time, was in the first year of uh, the Trump administration when Donald Trump got into essentially a shouting match with Kim Jong-un mm -hmm. in North Korea. And there were talks, you know, talk of fire and fury and all of that. And people got really concerned about what he would do, because after all, this was a man who had said that, you know, we have nuclear weapons, why can't we use them, among other things? So I want to talk about Vladimir Putin and whether or not you consider him a rational actor. But I guess I want to put that question in the context of the the detente, I guess, that, that existed in, in the 1980s between the United States and the Soviet Union. As fearful as I was as a teenager of the idea of 
uh, coming home and discovering that that this was the day that that nuclear war was going to break out there was this kind of understanding i guess that the the idea that both the united states and the soviet union could destroy each other pretty easily was itself a deterrent to 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 nuclear war and that no rational person would would start such a thing because it would mean the end of of so much of of the world you know fast forward to 2022 vladimir putin is not uh, brezhnev or uh, or gorbachev or any of the, the the names that that we would remember from from that era but but put him in that context is he is he more irascible perhaps is he uh, less restrained than those former leaders and is that part of the reason we should be afraid. Uh, well, I don't know him. I've never met him personally. <laughs> I can only go by by people you know who have and who have studied this. And uh, I would note that in a recent interview in uh, Politico, uh, Fiona Hill, the longtime uh, Russia Russia watcher and former uh, uh, intelligence analyst, and of course most most people know her from uh, Donald Trump's first. Uh, impeachment hearing because she worked in the National Security Council in the first year of his administration. Uh, you know, she said, uh, and I'll just quote her here briefly: "The thing about Putin is, if he has an instrument, he wants to use it. Why have it if you can't?" And then she went on to say that, in fact, uh, Putin has already, in a sense, used nuclear weapons by using highly radioactive materials to poison uh, his enemies uh, mm -hmm. overseas, and uh, he's, of course, made. Main nuclear threat. So I think I think he's rational, but I think he's also getting very bad advice. And I think that he has also isolated himself so much. I mean, reportedly because of COVID, he he basically stopped seeing a lot of people for the last two years. And certainly in the, the pictures that we've seen of him in the Kremlin in the last few weeks, he's keeping, he's literally keeping his distance from people. Um, and so I I don't think, and, and certainly that bizarre. Uh, meeting of, of his, his national security team, where he essentially ordered them to tell him how good he was and how good this plan was uh, to go into Ukraine, uh, I think should should give us all pause. I, I would hope that he's rational. He certainly hasn't done anything at this point that, that suggests he is completely irrational. But I would note that only rational people can be deterred. If somebody is irrational, if they're not operating within the bounds of reality, and they don't have any fear for their own personal well-being or the well-being of the people that they that they lead no number of threats uh you know or anything that you can say to them will discourage them from doing whatever they want and i think the problem that we face today is that the advocates the proponents of nuclear weapons have told us for decades that they are key to keeping the world at peace you know again that we the cold war was kept cold by the threat of nuclear war and the bargain is that we are prepared at any moment, as is Russia, to destroy the world, and that by being prepared to do so, we are in fact saving it from, from this terrible form of, of destruction. But the reality is that we're seeing right now is that far from making the world safe from war, we've in fact allowed war to happen under the threat of nuclear weapons. Putin has issued threats and the United States and NATO have, I think correctly for the moment, 
decided that, you know, whether or not he truly intends them, he has the capability, and therefore we cannot uh, directly intervene in this war. We cannot establish a no-fly zone. We certainly can't send troops in to Ukraine because doing so could very well set off, uh, if not World War III, the use of nuclear weapons somewhere, which would be obviously horrendous. So nuclear weapons have not kept us safe from war. They have allowed, uh, you know, they, they have allowed war to happen and they mm. will continue to uh, uh, until we do something about that. Okay, coming up, uh, we're going to continue this conversation about the possibility, the threat of some sort of nuclear conflict uh, and whether that is heightened by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We want to hear from you as well. What has the idea of nuclear war meant to you, especially when you were growing up? Uh, do you remember duck and cover drills in school? Did you internalize the real threat of nuclear weapons? Maybe anticipate many days that uh, it would be the day that uh, nuclear war might start. Uh, and give us a little sense of how you're thinking of those things given the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, do you think nuclear war is more likely today than it was just a few weeks ago? Do you think it is more of a threat than it was in the 1980s and early 1990s? As always, the the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, Facebook, or Twitter. Put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Stephen Schwartz, non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and an independent consultant, editor, and co-author of the 1998 book Atomic Audit, The Costs and Consequences of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Since 1940. Uh, we're talking about the prospect of some sort of nuclear conflict, uh, something we have lived with for a very long time uh, on this planet. Uh, there have been other times in our history where I think uh, we have felt more under threat from those things. But uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, uh, is making a lot more people think about it uh, in a more explicit way right now. Uh, are you one of those people? Are you somebody who is now worried in a different way about the possibility of nuclear war because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh, give us a call. Tell us how you're feeling. How are you processing uh, all of that? Tell us what you think um, uh, of the, the historical context here. Are you someone who remembers uh, the times in the 1980s and 90s when it seemed nuclear war was just a moment away at any given point? Uh, how do you compare those times to these? Uh, what are you telling your children about nuclear war? Uh, I was a child in the 1980s, and I remember that all the things that I learned and was told about nuclear war really made me afraid. And uh, I started the show talking about 
coming home every day and looking up at the sky before I went into the house, uh, fearful that uh, this was the day that nuclear missiles might be flying overhead. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, let's start with Mike in Gross Point. Mike, what's on your mind? Uh, good morning. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hey, sure. Good. First, I want to tell you that because of you, I increased my donations to WTDET <laughs> by 50%. Oh, there you go. I got the T-shirt, I got the hat, and now I got the, the uh, drinking cup. So <laughs> I can't live without this show. I'm surprised CNN hasn't stolen you away from us. <laughs> so, however, turning to the subject at hand. So, you know, we, we have to read the signs. And... Putin is a bully and a coward, but I don't think he's suicidal. And um, if you look at the way he's responded to COVID in the past two years, he has a heightened sense of self-preservation. Just sitting at the table 30 feet away from his uh, advisors hmm. tells us that he doesn't want to die. And I really don't believe that he um, is willing to start a nuclear war, knowing that it's going to really increase the possibility of his own death or the destruction of his country. I think that he cares more about his own death than he does about the destruction of Russia. The Russian people are huge victims in all of yeah. this as well. Yeah. Now, I do think that that in mind, the West may have misread things a bit because this is a man who only understands force. And I don't know uh, if he would have invaded if he would have thought that the West would come to the aid of Ukraine. So I just think that we need to look at what the way he cares about his own life before we allow him to make threats that um, cause nations to fall. Because if he gets away with this in Ukraine, who's going to be the next victim? Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Mike, it's a it's a it's a great point. Both of uh, your points are really, really interesting. Um, And and I think I think one of the things you're pointing out is this kind of delicate tension between um, the idea of using force to to push Russia back, uh, but then also being being mindful of of the nuclear power that they do have and and whether they might use it. Uh, Stephen Schwartz, I wonder what you make of that analysis. I I I, I tend to agree. I, I think this is a, a terrible situation, first and foremost, for the Ukrainian people. Um, and I think we should not lose sight of the fact that while we're talking about the potential destruction of you know an, of a nuclear weapon, that Ukraine is being destroyed by Vladimir Putin right now, piece by piece. So uh, I think that's you know got to be for, in the forefront of our minds. But I, I don't. Again, I don't think he will do anything that would deliberately. Uh, cause these nuclear weapons, nor do I believe at this point that he intends to use them apart from threatening to use them, which is a use, a form of use in and of itself. Um, but again, there's the possibility of, uh, you know, he's he obviously intended for this war to go very differently. And there's a concern that uh, he may, out of frustration, uh, you know, do something to accelerate it, which could lend, then lead to something else, which, you know, might ultimately lead to 
you know, a ratcheting up of the, you know, uh, uh, of nuclear threats. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I think most people <laughs> do not want to see nuclear weapons you know, used. On the other hand, the reality is that both the United States and Russia have hundreds uh, of nuclear weapons on constant alert, and we practice with them constantly. Of course, you know, Russia just did some exercises with them. Mm -hmm. We are fully prepared to use them, uh, both of our countries, right away. So these are not just weapons that sort of sit around somewhere, you know, in a depot, although I would note that Russia's uh, short-range battlefield nuclear weapons are, in fact, on a regular basis, all locked away. So that's that's the good news. Uh, but the weapons are out there. And, you know, that's part of the deterrent posture is not just being uh, able to say that I have these weapons and I will use them, but having them actually available, ready to use immediately. So that's, you know, we, we had that problem in in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we had, you know, Nikita Khrushchev try to sneak nuclear weapons into Cuba, uh, got caught, and then, you know, got into a situation where we had a terrible crisis. And, you know, most people look at that situation and say, well, that was terrible. And that was clearly the closest that we've ever come to the use of nuclear weapons. And boy, it's a good thing we didn't. You know, Kennedy kept his cool. He didn't allow his generals to essentially bully him into using nuclear weapons or attacking uh, Cuba in a way that you know Russia and the Cubans who were in control of some of the sites would have would have retaliated. But most people don't realize that at the very height of the crisis, there was a time, there was one day when we could have actually had an accidental accidental nuclear war three separate times because of a stray uh, U-2 spy plane that flew off course and went over Russia, uh, because of a submarine that had nuclear weapons on board that we were harassing to try to force it to the surface. Uh, among other things. And, uh, you know, it's really only because of luck, honestly, that nuclear weapons weren't used then. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we need to be even more careful now, even though there are far fewer nuclear weapons in the world today, which is a good thing, but there should be many, many fewer. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Mike, uh, really appreciate the call and your, your thoughtful comments. Uh, let's go next to Tom and Taylor. Tom, welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, hey, it's nice to be on your show this morning. Uh, I was uh, a Takamo sailor. I'm not sure if you understand what that is. And prior to me becoming a Takamo sailor in the Navy, I, I had no idea what it was. But the United States Navy has a, a series of aircraft that communicate via VLF, very low frequency, with the mm -hmm. nuclear submarine force um, on a on a daily and currently, I think we, I think on an hourly basis with the uh, submerged uh, Ohio-class nuclear submarines. Uh, that's what I did in the Navy. And while I was in the Navy, we spent a lot of time thinking about nuclear war. Sure uh, it would come yeah. with the territory of working on such a system. And what we came to, uh, what the sailors that I was working with at the time, what we came to conclude is that every weapon that man has discovered, and think of those weapons like fire, uh, the cold of winter, the heat of summer, sticks and stones, we've used and continue to use to this very day uh, to kill one another. Uh, along came the knife and the spear, uh, gunpowder, uh, black powder, uh, C4, guns, and we're still using all of those weapons this very day to kill one another, except hmm. one, and that's the nuclear weapon. Uh, right. If human history is to bear out, well, we will one day use those weapons to kill all, to kill all of us at one point. 
human history almost demands that we do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom, I, I really appreciate your call, especially because of uh, the experiences that, that, that you've had. Uh, that idea of inevitability, I think, is one of the things that's scariest about about all of this. And it was one of the things that I think in the 80s and 90s really propelled, you know, fears for people was that if you have all of these things, if you have this capability, it's only a matter of time before somebody will use it. And then, then the question is, what, what happens next? Uh, uh, Stephen Schwartz, I wonder what you make of, of that kind of thinking around this issue. There is no weapon in human history that has been built that has not been used. And of course, we have used nuclear weapons twice on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in, in 1945. But we haven't since then, uh, at least not by actively exploding them over, over an enemy's territory. Um, you know, and thank God for that. But there have been many times when, and not just the Cuban Missile Crisis, <clears throat> when we came very close uh, to doing so. And I think what's so alarming about this situation for most people beyond the fact that it's, you know, been 30 years since we've kind of dealt with this, is that there doesn't seem to be, you know, a great a great way out. Uh, again, you know, Putin is, this, this, this nuclear weapons have made the world safe for war. And this is, this is a very potent example of that. You know, we can kid ourselves that we've, you know, we've somehow managed to get through, you know, the uh, intervening period between World War II and now without another world war. And, and that's true, but the lots of other wars have happened and they've happened under the under the the cloak, if you will, of of, of, of nuclear deterrence on both the uh, sides of the United States and Russia. So, you know, Putin is actively deterring us and NATO from getting involved, but he's also coercing us or trying to to get his to get his way, and you know, thank God for the brave uh, Ukrainian people that are fighting for for their very lives and, and their democracy. But I do tend to think that yes, if if we let this go on, you know, forever or however long forever is, that that the day will come when those weapons will be used. And certainly, there have been some people already, you know, talking in not so veiled terms about well, maybe we should use mm -hmm. nuclear weapons if you know that we could fight a limited nuclear war uh, and that we could get out of it. Uh, you know, as, as uh, General Turgeons had said in Dr. Strangelove, uh, you know, without getting our hair must. And uh, I think that's exceedingly dangerous. Nuclear weapons today in the United States are thoroughly integrated into our conventional force posture, such that there's not really a fine line between conventional and nuclear weapons anymore. And, uh, and that was deliberate. And I, I get worried that if we get into an active shooting war uh, with Russia or anybody else, uh, that we could accidentally stumble into weapon using these weapons, and 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 then what happens? You know, how far will we go? Yeah, Stephen Schwartz was really great to have you here with us to think through the nuclear threat that we all live with. Thanks so much for being with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Coming up next, we're going to talk about how we cope with all the frightening things that are happening in our world, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the possibility of nuclear war. We're gonna have a conversation with a University of Michigan professor and media psychologist about what we should be doing, how we should all be taking these things in. We wanna to continue to have you here with us on the show as well, on the phones and on social media. 
313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the show. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. How do we deal with all the big, terrifying things in the news every day? The things that we as individuals don't have a lot of control over. We've been talking about nuclear war, and we recently talked on the show about the new climate change report that predicts a really scary future for all of us. And for our kids and our grandkids. We're now two years into a global pandemic that has killed at least six million people worldwide and caused widespread sickness and social turmoil. And the threat of political violence in the United States after the January 6th, 2021 insurrection is just as present now as it was then. It's just plain hard sometimes being plugged into the daily news cycle. You can feel really frightened, but you can also feel really helpless. And although I think we all know we can do our small part to react to these things and try to think them through, none of us as individuals can single-handedly change the course of any of these issues. So how should we be coping with these realities? That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today, and we've got a really wonderful guest with us to help us think that through. Dr. Kristen Harrison is a University of Michigan professor and media psychologist. Dr. Harrison, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Happy to be here. So how do you think of all these big looming issues that are affecting us in so many different ways, but but especially seem to be affecting people's mental health right now. I can't go six hours on social media right now without seeing somebody really express a level of desperation I'm not used to seeing about just reading the news or watching the news. What do we what do you make of all of these these things that we're dealing with? Well, I am a media psychologist, and so my work really focuses around media and and the um, impact of media in human life. So, um, as you mentioned, so many of the things that are upsetting today we learn about um, through the media. You know, for example, the war in Ukraine, um, the pandemic. Um, I just heard this morning uh, while I was on my treadmill watching the news about some new spider that's coming up from Georgia and it's black and yellow and three inches long. So I, I apologize that. to your listeners. <laughs> I apologize to your <laughs> listeners if I just scared them. Um, but the point is, with fright, um, my collaborator Joanne Cantor and I have done research on fright for over twenty years. And with fright, it's tricky because you do want to be vigilant enough to protect yourself and your family. But it's absolutely true that you can go overboard. Um, And the important thing to remember is that we become good at what we practice. So if you're in constant vigilance mode with the media news on all the time, 
you are going to be practicing fear and you don't want to become really good at practicing fear because then, you know, anxious thoughts become automatic. So what we need to do is really be mindful about how we're structuring our days. And if you want to, um, you know, pay attention to news, I have to pay attention to news because I teach about media. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do is is I compartmentalize it. And so I watch the news for half an hour while I'm on the treadmill in the morning and that's it. And if I need to find out more about a particular thing, you know, I will hop on the internet and and go to a reliable source. But um, you have to know what is too much for you. It's like just like any diet, you know, think of media as a diet. A little bit of something is good for you, but too much of it is bad for you. You have to take the same approach. So uh, it, 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 it's hard to do that. And we were talking earlier this week on the show, or last week, I think, about how hard it is and that there is, we live in an environment where there are these tools that these companies have that not only give us lots of information, but manipulate our brains in some ways to to want more of it and to not be able uh, to put it down. So what are some of the things you counsel people to do or say people should be thinking about doing to resist this? Look, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. I mean, I, I, I find it very hard to turn my eyes away from the things that come on uh, my phone or uh, the television screen. How, how are we supposed to cope with that part of it? Well, one thing to do is remember that they are bidding for your attention with all of this. And so you have to ask, whom do you want to give your attention to? They want you. They profit from your attention. So um, number one, you get to be, you know, be, be judicious about whom you give your attention to. Um, I'm, I, I'm not going to say to you, shut off, you know, disengage from social media, turn off the TV, et cetera, because there is, um, I, you know, I study children in media and everybody's afraid of the internet, but I, I'm a firm believer that the internet has far more opportunities than risks. The, the point is you have to be very selective and judicious. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to get through the pandemic if it weren't for my friends who happen to be active on Facebook at six in the morning when I'm drinking my coffee and Wordle, which everybody loved because it's, you know, this simple little <laughs> game that we can do. And it's like, look what I did today, this little achievement um, and funny memes. So these things have sort of kept me alive. But in between all of those things, we get the endless, you know, input, all of the things that we're supposed to be afraid of and the world's falling apart. And a lot of these things are true. These are things we should act actually be um, concerned about and take efforts to protect ourselves around. But when you feel like it's too much, that's when you need to disengage. Um, like, let's say if you feel a lot of anxiety at night before bed and you can't sleep well, are you watching the news before bed? Don't watch the news before bed. In fact, don't do it anyway because the blue light from the screen interrupts sleep. Um, if you watch it in the morning and you can handle it better that way, then do it that way. So it, it really is um, something each individual needs to think about with respect to how they structure their day. But also be mindful of how your own fear might be getting passed on to your kids. Because we have to, um, as all parents know, we have to make sure they have enough fear to stay away from the riskiest stuff, but not so much fear that they're afraid to you know, go out and explore their worlds and live their lives. Mm-hmm. 
I'm talking with Dr. Kristen Harrison, who is a University of Michigan professor and media psychologist. We're talking about how to cope with big, frightening things that uh, we can't really control. Um, we would love for you to be part of this conversation as well. Call and tell us how you're coping with all of these big, looming threats we keep hearing about in the daily news cycle. Uh, do you feel like you're able to stay informed and empowered without feeling overwhelmed? by things like the Russia-Ukraine war, climate change, or the pandemic. Uh, and call and tell us what things you're doing to try to protect your mental health. And especially call and tell us what kinds of things you're doing to try to protect the mental health of your kids. I think uh, we, we all know that uh, the things that we see and digest uh, uh, hit our kids differently and uh, have a different effect on their mental state. How are you managing all of these things that uh, could really be frightening for for children? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Ken in Troy. Ken, what's on your mind? Uh, I'm... I'm uh... I'm curious. I'd like to hear Dr. Harrison's take on this this uh, observation. Um, it, it seems like two of the demographics that increasingly have time to to be exposing themselves to social media and and the mass media are are uh, retirees, which is a grow, growing portion of the public a public and and uh, and people who work from home. And um, I'm wondering what she, what what effect she thinks. You know, that social condition is having on the amount of stress we're seeing in the whole public. Great question, Ken. Uh, Dr. Harrison? Yeah, that's a great question, Ken. I think, um, you know, I am one of those people, being a professor, I, I'm now back in the classroom, but we sort of have a hybrid thing going here at Michigan with some of the classes online or some, you know, some of the, like, my discussion is online, but then my lectures in person. And one of the things I've noticed, I talk to my students a lot about this, is... Um, it, it, it's very easy to let the world that is delivered to you through the media become your whole world if you're not getting out. Um, and we don't, we may not have all of the options that we had before to do things out of the home. Um, and I know that, you know, some people who have disabilities, for example, may not be able to get out of their home. So I'm not saying this as a, um, uh, a as an indictment of people who stay home. But um, it, it, you need some, you need a counter narrative to the narrative that you're getting. And so if the narrative you're getting all the time is the world is an extremely dangerous place and um, you shouldn't go out into it because you could end up with this disease or, you know, whatever, um, that even if you can say, oh, well, I'm sure, you know, this is the media overdoing it. If you don't have a counter narrative, it gradually kind of seeps in and becomes your worldview. So one of the things I recommend to students is, get outside. Um, first of all, at this time of year, we all are low in vitamin D. So we all should be getting outside at least somewhat. Um, but try to get outside, try to engage with the natural world, because the human world is where most of our misery is coming from, um, and what humans have done to the natural world. But this past year, I bought one of those little cameras that magnifies things a 1000 times. And I would go outside and pick, you know, flower buds and leaves, and I'd look at them up close. And it was the most amazing 
mm. boost to my mental health because it was a reminder that there's an entire world out there that we we ignore, we don't even look at, we um, just walk but that by world it. is still vital. <laughs> wow, that's a really interesting. That's a really interesting idea, right? To to look more closely at the small things that uh, are around us instead of just kind of walking by them and, and not taking them in. That's, that's, that's great advice in and of itself. Uh, again, Ken, I really appreciate the call and the question. Let's go next to Brad in Rochester Hills. Brad, welcome to the hey, show. Hey, Stephen. It's always good, good to hear from you every now and then. Uh, uh-huh. uh, I, uh, how I'm coping uh, with this uh, current uh, crisis is happening in between Russia and Ukraine. I, uh, uh, just I uh, want to let you know that uh, I'm praying for those uh, uh, folks in Ukraine, especially uh, those uh, in the Christian community, as well as uh, uh, Ukraine's uh, president, uh, who's actually Jewish. And I've got a couple ladies that I know of Ukrainian heritage that uh, I keep in my prayers daily. And one of them happens to be my neighbor, who's uh, uh, discouraged and disenchanted by the whole scenario. And I don't know how much uh, media she feeds on, but uh, speaking for myself, I keep my mental health uh, balance and try not to overload on all the media with all its uh, hype, but it's just enough information to know how to cope and balance that off with my Christian spiritual uh, belief systems by tuning into Christian programming and especially uh, uh, Christian music and keeping myself occupied with my Bible, too. Yeah, you know, Brad, uh, faith is one of the things that I think lots of us turn to, especially when things seem overwhelming uh, the way they do right now. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that that's a place of, of solace for you. Um, uh, Dr. Harrison, this this idea of of faith as a way of trying to cope and I think trying to accept that um, that we don't have much control over over some of these things. I mean, I think that feeling of helplessness uh, is is one of the real drivers of the the sadness that I think people people have right now. Um, you know, faith is one of the ways that 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 we do kind of cope with that feeling of helplessness. I, I think faith is a fascinating topic here because there are really two ways that faith um, can help you with coping. One of the ways is within um, research psychology, there's been work on what's been called mortality salience. So when you remind people that life is short and that they will die one day, um, it, uh, research shows that people, the appeal of a, um, a sort of um, omnipotent, omnipotent, charismatic leader goes up. Um, and so you can imagine that you, the appeal of, of if you believe in God, and especially a, a, a benevolent God, that that person, that that figure, sorry, that that, that you know, divine figure will protect you, that's incredibly reassuring. But the other way I think faith uh, factors in and we don't pay much attention is through healing from trauma. Um, I teach a class called Media and the Body and we're covering a section on media and trauma. And there's a lot of research coming out now about the importance of the body in healing from trauma and especially the power of collective movement. Hmm. So if you look at churches and temples and sort of how they run things, people are reading together, they're singing together, they may even, you know, there may be a choir dancing. 
they're, uh, you know, I was raised Catholic and um, everybody does the same movements together. You know, you stand up, you kneel, etc. And um, we shouldn't underestimate the power of that in helping people heal from trauma. Uh, trauma makes you feel completely alone and hopeless. And when you are synchronizing your movement with other people, you feel like you're part of something bigger. So even if it's not driven by research, I think, you know, for millennia, spiritual collectives um, under, have understood that uh, synchronized movement helps people heal. Yeah, yeah. Again, Brad, really appreciate the call and uh, and your comments. Let's go to Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, what's on your mind? Uh, hi, Stephen. I'm trying to take and give a break to the news all the time. What we do is is a, a routine every night. We watch some of the news, local and national and international, and then we wait for seven o'clock we can't wait can't get here fast enough because it's wheel of fortune and jeopardy <laughs> and that's the best thing to take your mind off to another place and also getting out i am blind unfortunately now and and can't see the the, the possibility and the budding and everything but i mm -hmm. do enjoy the smell and the and the breeze and the warm sun wow no that's a great reminder phyllis that uh you know, it's it's all of our senses that uh, that that we can use to to appreciate things like the like the outdoors. But I love this idea of watching Wheel of Fortune and and, and Jeopardy every night. It is kind of a an escape. Uh, uh, Dr. Harrison, you talked about Wordle, which uh, which of course <laughs> is is another kind of escape that that is fun. And and the communal nature of those things, I think, is one of the things that makes them so powerful. No one's wordling by themselves, it seems. They're, they're wordling right. and sharing it with, uh, with other people who are interested. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's, a small, it, it's a small act of achievement. Same with, you know, uh, Wheel of Fortune, right? You're trying to solve that little puzzle or mm -hmm. Jeopardy. You're trying to solve a puzzle. So it gives you this moment, this tiny feeling of achievement in a world that makes you feel otherwise completely helpless. And th this is where, you know, returning to healing from trauma, I would recommend, um, you know, uh, Fred Rogers of Mr. Robert Rogers' Neighborhood famously said, look for the helpers. Mm -hmm. For children, that's great. I think for adults, one of the ways to feel more in control is to be a helper where, where you can. So you have this feeling of constructing or achieving something. So that little feeling of achievement with Wordle or, or you know, Wheel of Fortune, you can expand that a little bit by being a helper, doing something constructive or, or creating anything, um, artistic or not. Creative problem solving is fine too. But life can have us feeling these days like we're hiding behind a rock waiting for the crossfire to stop. Wow. And if you're not careful, you can end up hiding behind that rock long, long, long after it's safe to come out. And so one of the ways you can start, you know, peeking out from behind that rock again and reclaiming the life that you want is to do something with your mind, with your hands, with your body that um, re-engages your connection with the world. And, and it's like you're starting to rebuild a new life that might have different priorities, but you're going to be working toward those priorities. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Dr. Kristen Harrison, great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining all right, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow because Broadway is back and the wonderful musical Hamilton is going to return to Detroit later this year. I'm going to talk with Hamilton producer and Metro Detroiter Jeffrey Seller. 
about the return of live theater and his enormous impact on Broadway over the past two decades. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.